In an introduction to one of his written pieces, John Crawford was defined as a child of the motor car, which started with pedal cars and dinky toys and ended up with PR with Jaguar. One of his abiding friendships was with Britain's most gifted driver and one of great character, Sir Sterling Moss, who has just passed away. John joins us on the line now. John, thank you for this opportunity. It's a pleasure, David. In 1961, you caught a train to Western Sydney. What was the event and was it important? Yeah, it was, as a matter of fact. I went with three mates. We uh, decided to go to this uh, new circuit called Warwick Farm. And um, we sat on the top deck of the grandstand under no protection from the sun, beating down in the middle of a Sydney summer, to watch these international drivers racing at the new Warwick Farm circuit. And um, we were just so impressed with the speed with which they drove, the confidence with which they drove. And, of course, there were a, a huge number of um, local drivers, Lex Davison, Alan Jones's father, Stan Jones, uh, was running a car, and um, the internationals just um, exuded such fantastic confidence, but none more so than Sterling Moss. And um, we were all very amazed when Moss's car appeared on the grid for the main event without any side panel. And um, the commentators were equally bemused about the whole thing. And finally, after he had won the race very easily from Jack Brabham, whose car had, um, had, had failed on him, and I might say that Brabham was very close to him and hot on his t- tail most of the most of the race. But once Brabham's car failed to continue, Moss just literally ran away from the field. And when he was interviewed after the race, and the commentator Keith Regan said to him, um, "Sterling, uh, the car looks unfinished. Uh, there are no side panels." To which Sterling replied, "Look, old boy, it's bloody hot down here in Sydney, and uh, I just had to get some cooling air on my driver's suit." It is ironic that Jack Brabham's car failed and Moss's didn't. We'll talk about his his overall results in a little while, but versatility was a critical part of his. Why do you think 1955 was one of his greatest years? Well, I think really the, the whole versatility thing starts from his concept of becoming a professional racing driver. At that point in time, there was no such thing. There was nobody whose day job was a racing driver. And basically, Sterling was very adept at finding people who would pay him to drive their cars, and then he would negotiate very hard with the organisers. Once, once he'd begun to build a name for himself, and that, that happened very quickly, he was very adept at negotiating with the organisers of the race meetings how much the prize money would be and how much he would get, which was all very important because the money he took home from that race meeting, from being paid to drive and winning the race was what uh, gave him the financial impetus to go forward. But when he won the, uh, the tourist trophy in Dundrod in, in Northern Ireland, in Ireland, in blinding rain and incredibly strong winds, um, he literally ran away from the field, proved his absolute competence in the wet, and beat the factory Jaguar team so um, impressively that Sir William Lyons immediately offered him a place in the Jaguar racing team. And 55, he did some other things too, which included, was it his first Formula One victory? Yes, he had raced um, in various formulas, and and in those days, those cars were um, tiny wisps of things. He used to drive what was called a Cooper Jap, which was uh, a chassis created by John Cooper, 
but it was powered by um, um, a JAP uh, motorcycle engine. Very, very skinny tyres and wheels on it, but he was so incredibly quick. And, of course, as he showed his, com- his fellow competitors, incredibly smooth. Um, he never stressed the car, but having said that, in the course of his whole career, if a car let him down and broke down, he would very scornfully say to the manager of the team, well, if you can't give me a car that will last the distance and go as hard as it can to win, what's the point? You've described him as a racer, not just a driver. What did you mean by that? Uh, Sterling set out to win every race, and I don't mean by foul tactics either. I mean, he just simply assessed the competition, assessed the track in practice, and then realised he would work out tactically how hard he had to go lap by lap in order to beat either his uh, most favoured competitor or the track itself um, or the quality of the car. If he was confident in the quality of the car finishing the race, he would just go absolutely hard and he would apply the same discipline to every single lap. Uh, You could uh, measure his laps on a stopwatch and they would vary by minute uh, parts of a second. I find that astounding when you consider everything that's rushing by at such a frantic pace and the the ability to put a car in the same place every time sounds boring yet must take the most immense concentration. Was that one of his strengths? Absolutely, but I think his most famous phrase, and in fact it's on an inscription um, in a book that he inscribed for me that... uh, that I, I got him to, to autograph, and he says, and this is, was his lifelong philosophy, motion is tranquility. So uh, you'd have to say that when he was behind the wheel, he was in the best spot he could possibly be. That was his um, area of control and expertise, and his concentration never, never wavered. His domain. Indeed. And it wasn't just race cars either. Yes, the Millimilia was probably his most famous victory off a regular motor racing circuit. He entered the Millimilia, which of course is 1,000 kilometres, a race that starts in Brescia in northern Italy, goes to the south, turns around in Rome and comes back up through essentially public roads back to Brescia. And he entered the race in the Mercedes-Benz SLR. That car, incidentally, is preserved in the Mercedes-Benz Museum in Stuttgart and is now certainly when he gave up public life that car was put back in the museum and uh, with instructions from the management that it was never to be taken out again unless it was to be driven by Sterling Moss but he drove that car number 22 was its number alongside him was uh, the very famous motorsport journalist uh, the the, uh, continental correspondent for motorsport magazine Dennis Jenkinson and he and Jenkinson put in a huge amount of work before the Mille Mille in 1955, noting, and they drove the course many times, making notes about slow bends followed by fast bends or vice versa, uh, humps over bridges, areas where um, if there was a hard landing it could damage the car. And these notes were put onto, um, it's a, it's, Jenkinson himself described it as a, a roll of toilet paper that he kept unrolling those were his root notes written on a piece of paper on a cardboard tube which he then simply rolled towards him and read the driving instructions to Moss. But the most amazing thing about this win and something that in the life of the entire Mille Mille race of all the years that it was run 
is that nobody, no other driver, ever matched his average speed for the 1,000 kilometres, which was 99.95 miles an hour. It's a little bit like Bradman's batting average, isn't it? It is. <laughs> Perfection on four wheels. I looked at his figures. He won 212 races of 529. That's 40%, which is astounding. But even more astounding was he won 212 out of 375 that he actually finished, which is a record of 56%. That is unparalleled given the variety of races that he entered. Indeed. And uh, he even managed to um, to drive a, a big Jaguar Mark 7 one year in... Um in the Monte Carlo Rally, um, and his versatility uh, really was all about his uh, how adept he was at the wheel of any car. Once he understood the car and how it handled, Sterling really had no problem with the event that he was in, whether it was a rally, a hill climb, a circuit race, um, or something like the Mille Miglia. It was 20 years after that first event you saw him at Warwick Farm that you met him personally in difficult circumstances, not of yours or his making. What happened then? Well, there was um, uh, some fast-talking um, shyster, shall I say, and I use stronger language in my blog, decided to create an event called the Tribute to Champion. So he went around the world contacting champion racing drivers and managed to gather together about six or eight drivers, one of which was Sterling Moss. And he said, I want you to fly to, to, to Melbourne, and uh, we're going to have it at Sandown Park, and we're going to have a special... Um, I don't think we'd better have a race. I think we'd better have a parade. Most of the drivers contacted him back and said, we're not having a bloody parade, we're having a race. That's what we do. So this shyster managed to get these guys to come out to Melbourne, and uh, then he promptly... Um, took off with the money, um, leaving all of the drivers stranded with no return airfares, no accommodation, and virtually no prize money or any sort of financial assistance at all. He just skipped town. And a very dear friend of mine, uh, who was uh, well known to Sterling, called me up. I was the public relations uh, director for Jaguar over Australia at the time, which actually was the Jaguar importer. And he said to me, look, this is the most embarrassing thing. Sterling's been invited out to Australia to participate in the tribute to champions, and he's literally marooned in Melbourne. Can you help out? And as I said in my blog, and if you don't mind me mentioning it, hmm. my blog is www.drivingandlife.com. And I said uh, that um, I juggled my PR budgets around, flew down to Melbourne to meet the great man, paid for a couple of nights at a five-star hotel, provided him with a Jaguar to drive around Melbourne for a couple of days so he could see his many old friends there, and a, a first-class airfare back to, to London. Now, I know most people will probably think after that sort of generous um, example, uh, we'd become good friends, but we hit it off instantly that weekend, and uh, from that moment in 1981 until his passing, we were the closest of friends and, in fact, had a great uh, respect. Not only respect, but we had a great affection for one another. But I might point out, I'm one of hundreds of people who would call themselves a close and intimate friend of Sterling Moss because he made you feel, when he was with you, that you were his best friend. He had the remarkable ability to communicate with people on a very human level. He was debonair, 
yet not over pretentious. I, I love you said the commentator at Warwick Farm when he asked him a question. Uh, Sterling's answer was, "Well, old man." I think that was often the first expression he used when you met him at an airport. Yes, exactly. Hello, old boy. How are you? <laughs> Everything had to be done instantly. Hello, old boy. How are you? I've got my bag. Uh, where are we going? Where's the car? <laughs> and off we'd go. He started professional. His first professional race, I believe, was in 1948 when he was just 18 years old. Now, if you look at people like Fangio, whom you met and knew, who really started racing later in their career when it really was a gentleman's thing, as you say, there wasn't a lot of money in it. Was Sterling, did he break new ground in being so young and so talented? Yes, but by the same token, he was one of hundreds of young British men who that sort of dashing British spirit took them to the racetrack to see how well they'd fare. But Sterling was just absolutely determined this was going to be his life. And that's why when he was in public, when he was racing, when he was uh, being quoted in the paper or interviewed or so forth, he, he didn't really project this image. The image was him. And um, he, was, he lived the image. Uh, which is why I think that separated him from the many hundreds of young men who were starting out their racing careers. And uh, there were many times that Sterling would be racing against men twice his age with four times the experience. But he had this uncanny ability to sum them up very, very quickly in terms of their driving style and their habits. He would watch how they cornered. He would watch where they picked the apex. He would watch where they braked. And his wonderful competency just ensured that he applied all of those learnings to every race that he was in. It's very important that you can't just cover up everything with PR spin. He had that foundation. It was a lovely time of the debonair gentleman going around, I think perhaps typified best by Graham Hill's moustache, which was like David Niven, who was elegant and proper in that. Yet, did I read, he, he crashed, Serling crashed, of course, at Goodwood in 1962, a tragic event. How did he remember that? Sterling would have told you, was he, if he was here participating in this phone call, he remembered nothing of it, nothing, nothing whatsoever. He was um, rounding a bend, the car mysteriously left the track, and at about 165 miles an hour, it crashed headlong into an earth bank. It took the rescuers something like um, two hours to get him out of the wreck. And the surgeons, when they began operating on him in hospital, found that the most serious thing, apart from his obviously broken limbs, was that part of his brain had detached itself from the right-hand side of his skull, inside his skull. And that was probably the most serious thing that he had to overcome uh, in the many weeks and months he was in hospital. He was in a coma for a month, I believe, and partly paralysed for six months or more? That's correct, and that was really uh, down to the uh, the right side of the brain um, coming away from the side of the skull. But with his um, his ability to do what he was told, he was such a sensible person. He was not filled with uh, foolish bravado. Mm. And so the, the, the doctors explained to him what had happened to him and how he was going to, to, to fix it and put it on the man. And he just absolutely religiously followed that. When he was finally released from hospital, he got the entire medical team who'd looked after him all that time 
11 nurses and four doctors and took them all out to dinner with champagne uh, in London to thank them for their efforts. That's style, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, Sterling dressed well. I mean, he didn't care what he looked like on race day. You'll see many photographs of him. In fact, I've got a photograph on my blog of he and Dennis Jenkinson following the Mili Milia and they're uh, being um, embraced by the head of the Mercedes team, Alfred Neubauer, and they look absolutely dreadful. You can see where their goggles covered up their eyes, and the rest of their faces were black. And uh, Sterling used to always drive in a a very fancy cotton driving suit of pale blue uh, with a BRDC logo on it. That was for the British Racing Drivers Club. And he used to keep it immaculate, but... um, if it got dirty on the course of race day, he, he didn't care a dash, but he'd be back to the hotel, quick smart, into the shower and into beautiful street clothes, uh, which, as he became more and more famous, of course, were provided uh, as part of his sponsorship deals. He was an absolute whiz at negotiating sponsorships, and uh, the more famous he became, certainly in Britain, he managed to uh, cut his, uh, shall we say, cash outlay considerably. Did he ever think to get back to racing on a long-term sort of way? I know he did a few events, but did he ever think to become seriously involved in it again? Well, actually, the piece I wrote this morning, I think, is insightful into what happened to him. He did go back to racing sports cars for a while after he had a bit of a break, and he did um, a couple of years driving Audi sedan cars in in a touring car series, But uh, he and I were together at the Australian Formula One Grand Prix in Adelaide in 1988, and we were just sitting in the bar of the Hilton Hotel having a drink at the end of the the weekend, and I said to him, Sterling, you know, what really happened? Why why didn't you continue at the the top tier of of racing? He said, well, old boy, I'll tell you. He said, I went out one day, he said, to see how how good I was. He said, you know, I realised I could see my horizon of fear. And that really summed it up for me because he used to often say that the line between courage and stupidity was an extremely thin one. But he was smart enough to recognise that he had lost the great gift of timing, balance and uh, delicacy as well as the ability to push on at great speed. He just simply lost that combination that was going to result in him winning more races and making more money. I think the most money he ever made in a year when he was in Formula One, was £22,000, which is probably about, I don't know, 120000 Australian dollars. So, you know, compared to um, people like Lewis Hamilton, who make millions, Sterling was very modestly paid, but he made a living of it. He was a professional racing driver, and uh, he managed to make enough money to, uh, to live a rather grand life. In fact, the story about his grand house in London is one of the most interesting, I think, that's ever been told about anybody in particular. You know probably that a lot of the modern-day racing drivers domicile themselves in Monaco because they're trying to escape taxes. And uh, Sterling uh, aboard that. He, he couldn't handle that at all. But he bought a bombsite in Shepherd Street, Mayfair. Um, I think he paid about £5,000 for it. And it was a World War II bombsite. The, 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 the building that had been there previously had been completely levelled. In cooperation with an architect, he designed a magnificent six-storey house, which was quite narrow, which was why it had to be six storeys in order to get the required amount of living space. And he designed this magnificent house. Then he promptly spent about a year or a year and a half going around Britain 
negotiating for things to build the house, the bricks, the timber, the flooring, the, the internal walls, the, the decorations, the furniture. And the whole thing was based on the fact that the Sunday Mail was going to do a feature about Sterling Moss's house over three Sundays. And they were going to feature every part of the house, including his up to the intercom system, which connected the front door and the living room and the office and his bedroom. And uh, at any part of the house, you could talk to Sterling wherever he was. And so consequently, he built the entire house, furnished it, decorated it, the whole thing, for some miserable amount of money. I, he never, ever told me what it was, but just about everything he'd negotiated, which uh, gives you an insight into uh, his skill as a negotiator. And you stayed on the sixth floor, I think. Yes, my wife and I used to go and stay at Shepherd Street um, on a fairly regular basis over a few years, and um, we were um, always shown to the guest room on the sixth floor, and Sterling and Susie had a, a little West Highland White Terrier pup called Caesar. And Caesar used to climb the spiral staircase every morning and woof outside the door of the guest bedroom to be let in so he could come and say, uh, good morning. You said, of course, that he did not like the idea of moving to Monaco to save tax. He was staunchly British, wasn't he? Even to the point of driving the not the most powerful cars or the best developed cars, but at least the ones built in Britain. Was that part of his passion? He was incredibly um, patriotic. And I think probably the best example of that was what he considered to be his finest Formula One Grand Prix win, which was the 1961 Monaco Grand Prix. He was entered in a privately owned car. The car was owned by Rob Walker. And um, it was a Lotus 18 with a Climax engine and significantly underpowered compared to the Ferraris in 1961. And uh, motorsport enthusiasts will remember that the Ferraris of that year were known as the shark nose Ferraris. They had a very pointed front end and the air for the radiators went in a pair of nostrils on either side of the nose of the car. They were quite uh, striking looking racing cars, but vastly more powerful than Sterling's old Lotus Climax. But through skill and determination, he basically outwitted um, the Ferraris and everybody else and uh, romped home with uh, probably about three car lengths from the next Ferrari, which I think was his good friend, um, the American Phil Hill. Lotus and Climax, two great names from British motor racing. Absolutely. I mean, Colin Chapman's Lotus Car Company started with nothing. I mean, if you want somebody with a gift of the gab, Colin Chapman was the man. He could uh, talk the leg off an iron pot and uh, make money out of it. But he, he had uh, a philosophy for designing racing cars, which it was way ahead of its time at the time. And he, he made them, like many, out of tubular steel. But his great skill was making very light racing cars, which meant that the engine required to make them go fast didn't have to be all that large in capacity. Or whatever capacity it was, he made the car so light that the power-to-weight ratio was so exemplary that um, the car was potentially um, a winning car. You managed to perhaps sit beside Sterling Moss and Fangio as they drove around, but you also had a chance to experience him handling a vehicle when one of his renting places, the place he rented to other people, had a broken lock. What happened then? I was working in America at the time, and in those years, let's say between... um, I don't know, 1990 and 
1995, when I used to go across to Britain, I used to fly on a, a Saturday and I'd land in Britain on a Sunday morning about 6am and then I'd get a taxi into town and go and stay with Sterling and Susie for a couple of days before I physically started work at Jaguar, Coventry. Anyway, um, the, the problem is that here we have a man who's a brilliant driver, but give him a, a hammer and a chisel and a screwdriver and he's absolutely hopeless. So um, his workman, his uh, caretaker for his properties that he had amassed around London was on vacation this time. And I arrived at Shepherd Street at about 8 o'clock on a Sunday morning. And as he opened the door, he said, Oh, good I haven't got time to waste. So I put your suitcase in the laundry room. Um, uh, take your, your long coat off. C -c Come with me. We're, we're the bloody tenants over at Elgin Mansions have broken the door lock and we've got to replace it. So he backs the motor scooter out of the garage. I thought we were going in his car. He put the toolbox on the footplate and his feet on the toolbox, gave me the lock, and I hung around, gripped his waist for grim death because we took off like a Grand Prix race to scurry across London from May Mayfair to Maidervale to this uh, block of flats that he owned in Elgin Street in Maidervale went in and found that the two chaps who were renting this apartment, both of them from Pakistan, had broken the door lock. And so I had to, uh, I had to replace the door lock and make sure it worked because Sterling, that was an impossible task for him. He just wasn't cut out for handiwork and DIY. And uh, just as we were leaving, one of the young Pakistani men, who was completely impressed with Sterling Moss, intimidated, I'd say, that Sterling Moss was his landlord. And he said to me, uh, pardon me, sir, he said, but you see we have a problem here with the, with the wardrobe. And they had this bed set divided in two with a, a, a timber wardrobe, and the back had come off the wardrobe. And as you probably know, it's the back of a cabinet, cabinet that keeps it square. Mm. So once the back comes off, the cabinet becomes a parallelogram. And I said to Sterling, I said, look, we can't leave them in the lurch, Sterling. I'll just take a few moments to put the back on. No, 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 old boy, that's their problem. No, 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 bloody parkies, you can't trust them for anything. Let's leave. I said, no, no, Sterling, you go down and get the motor scooter warmed up and I'll fix the, I'll fix the wardrobe, which I did. And uh, I came down and he gave me a right royal dishing out um, in the street, in, in Elgin Street, about wasting time when we had to get across town because we needed to seal up a broken window. You're quite the handyman. On the back of the scooter, you cuddled Sir Sterling Moss. I did. You wouldn't have been the only person to do that. Did he get much fun out of motor racing? Oh, I think... How can I answer that? It's a difficult question, actually, David. I think it, it was his life, and he, he took his life, his racing life, very, very seriously. But I think all the fun was off track. When he left the track, um, he'd go back to the hotel and change... And somebody once asked him, you know, what's the greatest thing about motor racing, Sterling? And he said, chasing the crumpet, of course. It was a different time in many ways. Well, I do have a wonderful story told to me by a friend just over the weekend who said to me that um, he and his girlfriend, a very, very pretty blonde, went to watch him race at a particular motor racing circuit in Britain and they were standing in the middle of a corner on the outside of the track. And uh, after about three laps of Sterling coming around... The third, the fourth time he came around, one hand on the wheel and the other hand waving um, at this young girl. After the race was over, the, the couple went into the paddock to, uh, to, you know, get autographs from drivers and talk to them and look at the cars and all that sort of stuff. 
And Sterling spotted the blonde and made a beeline across the paddock and said to her, are you with this chap permanently, hitched or something? And she looked at him and said, no. And she, he said, fine, how about dinner? That wasn't Peter Davis, was it? Yes, it was. <laughs> I didn't want to embarrass Peter by saying that his, his, um, his lovely girlfriend had been whisked away by Sterling Moss, but these days I don't think Peter minds uh, that uh, brush with fame. <laughs> John Crawford, I appreciate your time greatly. Thank you very much. David, it's been a great pleasure to talk about a wonderful friendship of 40 years with one of the greatest racing drivers it's been my privilege to know. A sad time for you. Yes, indeed. Thanks again. And that was John Crawford, motoring writer, ex-PR man who has a long history in the motor industry that created some great friendships, not the least of which is that with Sir Sterling Moss.